0: Hello and welcome to the Energy Gang, coming to you from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. Now, one issue that we haven't talked about much in our reports from the COP is nuclear power. And it's fair to say that is a bit of an omission, because it's probably true to say that nuclear power has had more prominence at these talks than at any previous COP. In fact, some people have even been calling it the nuclear COP. That's partly because our hosts here, the United Arab Emirates, has been a pioneer of nuclear power in the Gulf region, building four reactors to meet 25% of its demand for electricity. But the main reason is that we've had pretty noteworthy announcements, including the biggest one probably, which is this uh, statement from 24 governments setting a goal of tripling worldwide nuclear power generation capacity by 2050. Those governments include several of the pro-nuclear names you'd expect, including France, Japan, South Korea, the US, the UK, and our hosts, the UAE. But there are also some you might not expect, including Ghana, Morocco and the Netherlands. Henri Payer, who's the head of the planning and economic studies section of the International Atomic Energy Agency, says there's now a much wider appreciation of the central role that nuclear power can play in tackling climate change.
1: I think there's a realisation that uh, it will be very difficult to achieve net zero without some form of clean baseload load, firm power, And this could be hydro for countries that are lucky to have hydropower. And for those that don't, uh, well, it has to be or it should be or it could be nuclear.
0: And nuclear technology is also seen as offering some big commercial opportunities. The Exim Bank, which is the U.S. export-import bank, recently launched a package of measures intended to support sales of U.S. small modular reactors, SMRs. Rita Lewis, who's chair of the Exim Bank, came to the COP to highlight the bank's support for SMR investment around the world.
2: What we are definitely seeing is that there is interest, especially at this COP, we're seeing interest across the board in almost every country. It doesn't matter what it is that we're talking about. It's all about helping our companies level the playing field when they are out competing, especially against China.
0: We'll hear my full interviews with Henri Payer and Rita Lewis later in the show. But first, I spoke to Dr. Sama bilbao Leon, who's the Director General of the World Nuclear Association, which represents the international nuclear industry. Sama, thanks very much for joining us.
3: It is my pleasure. Thank you. So there's been
0: tremendous amount of excitement about nuclear power at this COP. I've heard people even describe it as the nuclear COP, which maybe is a bit overstated, but certainly it's it's something people are saying. And perhaps in a more realistic way, but still signalling the importance of nuclear power, people have talked about nuclear being more central to this COP than it has been to any other COP in the past. Do you think that's right?
3: Well, I think that it is definitely true that nuclear energy has gotten a lot of visibility in this COP, which is, uh, I think, long overdue. I mean, clearly, if we are serious about reaching climate targets and doing that in a cost-effective manner and certainly in an equitable manner without leaving anybody behind, nuclear energy needs to be a piece of that puzzle. So so it's good that, that nuclear is starting to be part of the main conversation. But I think that there's still, I mean, I don't know that I would be as much as saying, oh, the nuclear cop, yeah.
0: One thing we did see that was very striking was this goal set by a group of 22 countries, including a lot of very significant economies, US, UK, France, Japan, and Korea. They said they wanted to see global nuclear power triple by 2050. That seems like a very ambitious target to say. That. If you look at our forecasts at Wood Mackenzie, I think we have nuclear generation capacity roughly doubling over that period. So tripling does imply a much faster rate of growth. Do you think that's achievable, that goal?
3: Well, I mean, so let me start by by, by maybe explaining why this is important. So I think that right now we have actually all the way to 24 countries that have endorsed this declaration or this commitment towards supporting uh, a target of uh, tripling nuclear capacity by 2050, and this is very important because this is the first time ever that you have seen uh, countries publicly, in a in a in a public uh, arena, much less uh, summits such as the the COP meeting, to actually say the word nuclear, much less the word nuclear in a positive manner. So, so it is very very significant. So, and I don't know whether you saw this, but at the same time, in parallel with, with this uh, ministerial declaration, there was a, a pledge by the global nuclear industry to actually uh, commit, to, to actually achieve that goal. So, so th- there, is, there is two sides to the story. So there is the, the challenge that the countries have put for the industry and the industry ac- accepting the challenge, if you wish. So that's, I think that's also very important. So now, how realistic is this? Um, So when we look at, uh, so we, World Nuclear Association publishes every couple of years the fuel report. Uh, And this is a report that has scenarios that are based on projections by countries, by different companies. So this is not a net zero scenario, this is a projection-based report. And our projections indicate uh, 931 gigawatts of nuclear capacity by 2040, okay? So this is based on non-projects and, and, you know, uh, provide possibly an optimistic achievement of some of these projects, but non-projects. So, so, you know, I mean, tripling is not, is not a, uh, enormous. Uh, I mean, tripling by 2050 is not, I mean, it, it is in the line, in the right line, yeah.
0: Right, got it. Because that so that number then you're saying nine hundred and thirty one gigawatts by twenty forty. That compares to what about three hundred and eighty today? What's that number? I mean, Would right you...
3: now it's what, four hundred and sixty or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's that yeah. much is yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: that. Right. Okay, got it. So as you say, so yeah, it's yeah. a rough doubling. But, so know.
3: exactly. So so it's maybe two point, a little bit more than two times by twenty forty, so three times by twenty fifty. I mean again, it is very ambitious, let's let's be clear. Uh it is very ambitious and and I don't know how true realistic that is. I mean, historically, uh, in the in the 70s, 80s, certainly that speed was achieved in France, in Sweden, in the U.S. So it clearly is doable. I mean, right now you have China and Russia. They really are building nuclear reactors at a very fast speed, but the rest of the world needs to join. So...
0: So what needs to happen then to make that a reality? And as you say, to get the rest of the world joined in. When you think about, these, you know, setting the goal is the easy part. You can say, we'll do this by 2040, that by 2050. Making it actually happen is the hard part. Yeah. What are the steps that need to be taken to get us on that path? Exactly,
3: exactly. I mean, you are completely right. I mean, so... For good or for bad, these COPs or these types of meetings are famous for lots of pledges. Everybody's tripling or quadrupling or doubling. We'll see how many of those pledges actually take place. So, But but, but I think it's important for nuclear or what, what I think needs to happen for nuclear is. So number one, uh, it is important to have all those countries because, first of all, we really need to have in place the policies uh, that are, that are going to enable this, this growth of nuclear. So, so having all these countries uh, presumably means that policies will be put in place that, that support the growth of nuclear. And very importantly, I think that having these countries speaking out loud about, about the importance of nuclear gives visibility and, you know, this long-term vision, uh, first of all, to the nuclear industry, for sure, but also the finance community. So, so we really need to put in place markets that recognize the value of nuclear energy, which is something that right now is a little bit taken for granted. So, so we really need to make sure that, that the markets recognize the value of nuclear energy, the 24-7, well, the, the dispatchability, that that is really not valued or recognized right now, number one. And then the finance community, definitely uh, we are going to really need uh, support Financial, financial means, affordable financing for nuclear. Uh, as you know, uh, many times the, the finance community feels that nuclear projects are more financially risky than others, which of course is reflected in higher uh, weighted average cost of capital for, for nuclear projects. So if we get a similar interest rates or similar cost of financing for nuclear projects and for other low-carbon energy projects, I think that is going to be an enormous, an enormous thing. But at the same time, obviously, uh, the nuclear industry does need to ramp up. Uh, uh, as you very well know, certainly in North America and perhaps Europe, for the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years, the overall capabilities of the industry have, have been eroded because, well, we, they haven't been too many construction projects. So it is now when the, the industry really needs to relaunch and, and rebuild to, to really keep up with, with, uh, with this expected demand. Yeah.
0: Right. So you're talking about markets and the market value of nuclear power, talking about financing and, and the costs of getting new plants built, which I think gets to the heart of the problem a lot of people have with nuclear power, which is the cost and something you'll find a lot of people saying, and I think this comes close to being my own personal position, is that, as you say, the advantages of nuclear being available 24 seven with zero carbon power are very compelling. And we don't have that many different technologies to provide that, but it's very expensive. And in particular, we've had a lot of problems with cost overruns and delays. When you think about the history in North America, and Europe in particular, it's not at all good in terms of being able to bring projects in on time and on budget. And you'll hear people say that there seems to be this sort of um, negative learning effect. In other words, the costs have actually not been, you would expect the cost usually of a technology to come down over time, Costs of nuclear have actually been going up. And when nuclear has to compete with technologies where the costs are low and have been falling, so in other words, renewable energy and maybe with natural gas generation as well, um, it's been finding it very difficult and an interesting example, for instance, this um, SMR small modular reactor project in the US that got scrapped recently, where, so this is a new technology, tremendous amount of excitement, um, seen, seen as having great potential for uh, deployment at scale, a new kind of a nuclear plant, but the customers that were meant to be buying the electricity from that plant said that if you compare this to what we would have to pay on a levelized cost of energy basis compared to renewable generation or natural gas, it just doesn't make sense to us. And so, you know, we're out. We, we, we can't support that kind of construction. So,
3: so uh, I mean, I I don't agree with you. I mean, it is true that we have a few projects uh, in North America and in Europe that have gone uh over time and over budget. But then we are forgetting that right now, we have 60 reactors. I mean, for the last uh, 20 years, we've been building reactors in many countries in the world on time and on budget. So China builds six to 10 reactors a year on time and on budget. We are going to see how Bangladesh is going to go from zero to 10% of their their electricity uh, being produced by nuclear in less than 10 years. We have seen UAE going from 0 to 25% of their electricity in less than 14 years. We are going to see similar feats in, in Turkey or in Egypt. We saw this historically in Korea, we saw this historically in Japan. Japan has been building reactors uh, in 36 months, uh, and all of this is affordable. I mean, in fact, uh, it is it is the cheapest electricity. So the fact that we have a couple of examples that are not good shouldn't really trump all the other other successes. And let me just say one thing, um, because I think that this is a very compelling uh, story. So Olkiloto 3. Olkiloto 3 is an EPR that actually was incredibly delayed and probably very much over budget. I don't know the final numbers.
0: In in Finland, this one. In Finland,
3: correct. And the very second that that reactor enter the grid in Finland, the price of electricity in Finland has dropped by 30 percent. So, so the stereotype and uh, the common wisdom of whether or not nuclear power is expensive is different. There is, to me, it's very different that it is a large initial capital cost than. The cost of nuclear electricity is expensive. Those are two different things. So, so large investment versus expensive is a different concept. So, so that's I think that I I like to to clarify that. The other thing that I would like to to say, I mean, uh, there has been a lot of um, over over an excitement, if you wish, about the fact that this new scale project was cancelled. I mean, so that is one of—I don't even know how many projects that we have right now with with the small modular reactors. NuScale has many other projects uh, ongoing, which is not that one. And frankly, I mean, it's very it's very sad that that project is not going to move forward. But frankly, I'm not very surprised. I mean, those utilities in in Utah and Idaho that were in that project—they were never too excited about it. I mean. That was a little bit of a way to, I mean, the way that that project was put, put together, they wanted to put the first reactor in Idaho National Laboratory, and they were kind of looking who around there could be a part of the project. So those those utilities were a little bit, twisted their arm into the project, and well, in the end, they, well, it just didn't work out. But I mean, I, I, uh, I know that NuScale has many other projects, Uh, They have several projects in Romania, as you know, that, as far as I know, are moving forward. And and they have other projects in the East Coast with with, um, uh, data server centers and things like that. So, I mean, I I think that uh, we will see uh, many new nuclear reactors in many places. I do think some of them will be large reactors, some of them will be small reactors, some of them will be very small reactors. I do expect that some of the first projects may not be the cheapest because first-of-a-kind is always a little bit more expensive, and I do expect that there may be not the exact perfect delivery in every project the first time, but I think that we are going to see that as we move forward, we are learning, I mean, we've seen this here at U A, the first reactor took some time, the second took less time, the third took less time, and the fourth, now we see that it is going to take a lot less time.
0: So you're saying then you think there's going to be a mix of reactor technologies going forward. How important specifically are those SMRs, small modular reactors, to the future of the industry? When you think about your, as you say, projection of 931 gigawatts of nuclear capacity by 2040, are SMRs going to have to contribute a large chunk of that?
3: Well, I think... um, There will be some, uh, many SMRs, but I think that also large reactors will still be a very large contribution. I mean, so we are seeing already in Europe, if you see many of the projects that are moving forward, whether it is in in France, of course, in the UK, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland. So you'll see that many of these those initial projects that we are looking at are going to be large reactors. I mean, this is because we need a lot of capacity. Then small modular reactors will be also very important. But um, I think that where they are seeing these small reactors to be very important, for example, is when you are trying to re- repower coal. So it seems like many coal power plants are about 300 ish uh, megawatts. This is the average all over the world. So it seems like replacing those uh, power plants with small modular reactors seems to be like a no-brainer. And you yeah.
0: can use all the existing infrastructure, the grid. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah.
3: that's so, so that's one of the options where where it seems a very easy a very easy replacement. There is also uh, options where you are going to use uh, these small reactors. Directly to co-generation opportunities for industry. So, like for example, uh, I, you you heard this this project with Dow Chemical in, in Texas, where they are going to directly use electricity and heat for nuclear. Uh, also in uh, in Poland, uh, uh, Centos, they are they are also looking at using small modular reactors for heat and electricity. So, so those um, very specific applications may be very well suited for small modular reactors.
0: I want to go back to an issue you mentioned earlier, which is financing. And you're saying that's yeah. one of the crucial issues that needs right. to be addressed if right. we are going to get this growth in nuclear power. Is one of the big problems there exactly what we've just been talking about in terms of economics, that banks are reluctant to finance Uh, nuclear power plant construction because they think it's going to go way over budget, it's going to get delayed, the economics are going to end up looking very bad for them. Is that the big problem? And so is that something the industry kind of needs to fix itself in order to be able to get financing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that historically there's been, I mean, so if you think about the the typical nuclear project, a large nuclear power plant, let's say a 1000 megawatts nuclear power plant. So this is a large uh, capital investment. Uh, it is going to be a uh, five-ish uh, construction time, right? So So this doesn't really align very well with the traditional investor that, that they expect to get a return on investment in the ne- in the next two years or so. So for a nuclear project, you are going to have a very large initial investment and you are going to start seeing some returns maybe five, six years from now. So So it is a matter of, of realigning the expectations on invest of investors. With the realities of our nuclear project. And this is something in which we are working, we are working right now. I mean, clearly a nuclear project doesn't align very well with, say, venture capital. That's really not the type of investors that we are looking for. But if you look at big pension funds or 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 investors that are looking for a long, uh, long return on investment, a nuclear project is perfect, because you are going to have uh, revenues for the next 40, 60, 80, 100 years, right? So it is, it is a, a different type of investment. So this is what we are trying to do, trying to find the right type of, of investors to, so they understand what is it that, that they are getting into, into a nuclear project. And also, the other thing that I would want to say is, there is many projects that require investment in nuclear, not just new nuclear power plants. So remember uh, if we are tripling uh, nuclear capacity, this means that we are going to need more fuel. This means that there is going to be investment in say uranium mining, investment in the enrichment capabilities, the uh, conversion, the fuel fabrication, uh, the entire supply chain. I mean, if we are looking at um, these uh, small modular reactors, for example, these are going to be factory fabricated. Obviously, you need to, to build the factories. So, so there is enormous opportunities for investment in nuclear technology that is not necessarily a nuclear reactor. So this is the type of information that we are trying to, to discuss with the investment community.
0: So as you were saying earlier, maybe not quite a nuclear cop, but certainly one where nuclear power has had a more central role than in the past and has been talked about more positively. I know you're about to go home. For you, the COP's just about over, even though the negotiations are going on here for a few more days. In terms of what's come out of this COP for you and in terms of shaping the future of the nuclear industry and helping support that kind of growth, that means that nuclear power can play an expanded role in addressing the threat of climate change. What do you think the significance of this meeting has been? How do you think COP28 will change the future of nuclear power globally?
3: Well, so uh, I really think that the policy signal is there. I think that that policy signal is going to incentivize a lot of investment. I think that it also has given a little bit of impetus to the industry itself to invest in itself. I mean, traditionally, the nuclear industry is a conservative industry, so it's one of these industries where everybody wants to be second. So it may be that with this bigger visibility and this, you know, recognition from policymakers, I think that some, some people may feel like, OK, I can be first. So so I think that that is going to be, uh, it certainly is going to is bring some energy to the industry. But again, uh, there is much work that we still need to do, as I mentioned. So we continue working with policymakers to shape these policies in the way that they need to be. We continue to work with the finance community so they understand how they can support that. And frankly, we are working with the nuclear industry itself to to actually, you know, develop these capabilities. We also uh, we need to to make sure that we have the people to power the industry. So you know, we need to inspire and, and recruit and retain the next generation of nuclear leaders. So so we are certainly working on that. But I mean, to me, not to say that, that this is victory, but certainly this is a very, very big and important first step in the right direction.
0: Samoa ba Leon. Thank you very much indeed. Great talking to you.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: For another perspective on the outlook for the nuclear industry, I also spoke with Henri Payer, who's head of the Planning and Economic Studies section at the International Atomic Energy Agency. I caught up with them out on the floor of the Expo City, where the talks are being held. So I'm joined now by Henri Payer, who's the head of the planning and economic studies section at the International Atomic Energy Agency. Henri, thanks very much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. So because of this agreement that we've had between 22 countries talking about this goal of tripling nuclear power generation capacity by 2050, there's been a lot of excitement about nuclear power here at COP28. And I've heard people say that this has been the biggest COP of all of them that we've had in terms of the prominence given to the role of nuclear power in tackling climate change. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
1: I I, I think that's uh, totally accurate. Nuclear has always been on the sort of margins of of COPs. And I would say under the the leadership of our uh, director general, uh, Rafael Grossi, who uh, took a delegation at COP26, uh, we had events there for, for the first time, IAEA events in the Blue Zone, and then last year in El Sheik, for the first time, the IAEA had a pavilion, the Atoms for Climate Pavilion, and uh, we've organized events uh, with partners, and member states and, and industry, and, and this year we've done the same. So I think there's a ramp up, and uh, the announcements that you're referring to are really a first uh, in, a, in a COP setting.
0: So that's very interesting and very uh, significant, as you say, to see the prominence being given to the role of nuclear power and the amount of interest that it's generated. I guess if you wanted to be cynical about it, though, you could say that when you look at the countries that are backing this statement about tripling nuclear power capacity, it's kind of the usual suspects. It's the ones mostly that you'd expect to be pro-nuclear. The US, the UK, France, uh, Japan, South Korea. Do you think it's significant in terms of... I mean, admittedly, there are some which are not expected so much, right? Yeah. So so Ghana, Morocco, two few countries which are perhaps more surprising. But even so, do you think there is actually a sort of a broadening of interest in nuclear power as a climate solution?
1: I would say there's uh, an alignment of policies and uh, visions of what nuclear can do uh, for the climate, for energy security and so on. The, the countries you mentioned, some of them had... Uh, phase-out policies not so long ago, like Korea, for example. France uh, was planning to shut down some of its oldest reactors. And this has been reversed in the last two, three years because of the uh, uh, concern for, for climate and concern for energy security. And nuclear is a solution to, uh, to both these issues and challenges.
0: And I guess Japan, another one where and Japan in the as aftermath, well. yes, yeah, yes, in the aftermath yes, of Fukushima. Yes.
1: I think there's a realisation that uh, it will be very difficult to achieve net zero without some form of clean base load, firm power. And this could be hydro for countries that are lucky to have hydro power. And for those that don't, uh, well, it has to be or it should be or it could be nuclear. Uh, and that's that's an important part of the of of planning for a resilient and robust net-zero energy system.
0: Right, absolutely. That's something we talk about quite a lot on the Energy Gang podcast. As you say, when you want zero-carbon, reliable, dispatchable electricity that's there 24-7, 365 days a year, there are not all that many solutions. There's maybe sort of renewables paired with storage might work, as I say. I mean, if you could scale
1: energy storage uh, massively and at a very cheap cost, why not? But I think for countries that uh, especially have an industrial base, that have uh, energy intensive users, uh, I think from a risk point of view, it's better to, to rely on a firm, uh, clean source of power than, than, uh, than on battery storage.
0: OK, so nuclear has an important role to play, accepting that point. That specific goal of tripling nuclear generation capacity by 2050, how realistic do you think that is?
1: Well, it's an ambitious, uh, very ambitious challenge. I would say it's an aspirational goal, probably. The IAEA, the agency uh, where I work, we publish uh, our own uh, annual uh, projections to 2050. We have a high case, we have a low case. What we've seen in the last three years is uh, uh, more optimistic uh, uh, assumptions on what the high case could be. And these are projections, not, not predictions. Uh, And uh, in our latest edition, which was released in uh, October this year, uh, we project a maximum of uh, around 890 gigawatts of nuclear by 2050, which is uh, more than a doubling of today's capacity. And to get there, we would need to have an extensive use of uh, the existing fleet through long-term operation, uh, lifetime extension, uh, when it's safe to do that, and a a very ambitious new-built program of large reactors and some uh, more advanced, small modular reactors as well.
0: Yeah, so those numbers you're talking about seem very much in line with what we're saying at Wood Mackenzie. I think in our our base case forecast, what we call it, which is our sort of expectation of what we think is most likely to happen, roughly speaking, global nuclear generation capacity doubles between now and 2050. And that's
1: what the uh, IEA in their Roadmap to Net Zero uh, scenario, they're also... uh, Calculating a doubling of uh, nuclear
0: generation by 2050 as the kind of the baseline. That's the sort yes. of that the course yes. we're currently on. Yes. But as you say, if you're serious about getting to net zero by mid-century, I think our number is that you'd need. I mean, that tripling is much more like actually what you'd need. That you Pro- need probably. Yeah. And,
1: and, and, and and there's one thing that I would like to say. Many of the scenarios, I mean, the vast majority of scenarios that we see from net zero, nuclear is, is, is present in the scenario as a low carbon source of electricity. But when you think of uh, getting to net zero, it's not just decarbonizing electricity which needs to be done, it's decarbonizing industry, transport and so on. So here we have uh, the, the need for alternative sources of fuels. Hydrogen could be, could be a, a, a source of energy, provided it's produced in a, a, in a way that doesn't emit emissions. Today, 98% of the world's hydrogen comes from uh, steam methane reforming, so with emissions. So hydrogen is, is a one avenue. And then heat, uh, a, a direct use of heat. And uh, what I'd like to say is a nuclear reactor, before being a source of electricity, is actually a source of heat. It's that heat that's converted to produce electricity, but it could be delivered to uh, uh, end users and there is experience of that, at, uh, not at high temperatures, but uh, district heating. For example, there are 30, 40 years of experience of district heating in the former Soviet Union, but also in Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland has a, a reactor that's been provided district heating for over 30 years. Uh, so. This is not new. For me, that's an untapped potential of nuclear power, to, to use that heat. And with the more advanced designs, high-temperature gas-cooled reactors, you could reach temperatures that are uh, of interest to in industrial
0: uh, users as well. Right, because again, when you think about areas that are really tough to decarbonize, Yes, the hard-to-abate sectors. Yeah, industrial heat, high temperatures that are currently provided by burning fossil fuels... Exactly. We don't have many alternatives and, at all for that.
1: And I would say that the demand for nuclear for decarbonizing those applications, that's not picked up in any of the scenarios. It's not picked up in our projections because our projections are based on, on a, a bottom-up approach, analysis of looking at all the projects that, 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 are, that are under construction, that are planned, and there are very, very few that are planned for uh, addressing that uh, specific need.
0: That is very interesting. Yeah. So then we have this point where there's a lot of potential and there are also these very ambitious goals being backed by a number of significant economies. How is that potential going to be realized? How are we going to get, if we were to get towards that tripling and to deploy nuclear power for a lot of these other uses you're talking about, how do you get there?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I mean, there, there are many challenges to be addressed from the industry point of view. Uh, of course, building on time to budget, you know that's a prerequisite. We need good bankable projects, especially in, in, in I would say Western countries the, the, with the loss of uh, experience in building uh, reactors. The, the first-of-a-kind projects that we've seen uh, in the last uh, decade have been over budget and, 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 and delayed. But some countries like in Asia, China or Korea, they've uh, been building continuously and uh, with much better uh, performances. So that's on the nuclear industry side, then there's an issue or a challenge of financing this effort. Financing nuclear as part of the clean energy transition uh, needs to benefit, I would say, from the same facilities or uh, as other low carbon technologies. And we know that some uh, banks, multilateral development banks, they do recognize that nuclear is a source of low carbon generation, but they exclude it because they consider it non-sustainable. And uh, here I would say there's a a little bit of a misalignment with what other jurisdictions have done, like the EU, the inclusion of nuclear in the uh, taxonomy of sustainable activities. It was a long battle, but there there was, I would say, scientific work to support uh, the inclusion. So I think it's maybe a matter of time. I'm being optimistic for banks to uh, update their uh, lending policy, especially climate finance uh, policy.
0: So when you think about COP and what COP uh, meetings can do to try and help the nuclear industry realise that potential and to play that expanded role in addressing climate change, as we've been saying, nuclear has been more prominent here at COP28 than it ever has been in the past. What more could these talks do in terms of breaking down some of those barriers? And if you had one kind of ask That you would put to the governments that have been gathered here to say, this is the thing we really need to help nuclear realize that potential. What would you say? Well, I would
1: say, you know, we really need that level playing field in energy and climate policies and and not single out nuclear as a case on its own. We were mentioning uh, lending policies of multilateral development bank, but uh, uh, also benefiting from all the incentives that some countries have put in place. And, and I'm thinking of the, the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes nuclear, uh, existing nuclear, new nuclear in the EU. Uh, there's a scheme that uh, aims at uh, addressing what the IRA is doing for the U.S., for the EU. It's called the Net Zero Industry Act. A couple of months ago, nuclear was excluded, uh, but uh, uh, the European Parliament recently put nuclear as part of the the basket of technologies. And I I think this is what is needed. We will not do it with one single technology. We need a basket of low carbon technologies. We need the incentives to support all these technologies because they they tend to be capital intensive. Low low carbon technologies are capital intensive. So all the enablers that have helped others also should uh, Benefits of the deployment of nuclear,
0: and from what you're saying, things are changing.
1: Things are changing. Yes, yes. I'm uh, I'm optimistic. I don't know ha- how fast. Uh, you were mentioning in the countries that have signed that pledge, uh, there are some embarking countries. They they need uh, to have, uh, of course, good good projects, but they also need access to financing, uh, and that that's a, a real uh, uh, bottleneck for the
0: moment. Corey Payer, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you. As we've been hearing, small modular reactors, SMRs, are expected to play a key role in the future of nuclear energy. The U.S. has some of the world's leading SMR technology companies, including NuScale, which suffered a blow recently with the cancellation of its flagship U.S. project in Idaho, but is still working on a number of other projects around the world. The U.S. export credit agency, the Exim Bank, wants to support U.S. sales of SMRs to other countries. Rita Lewis, the bank's chair, explained the message she brought to COP28.
2: We are really excited as America's Export Credit Agency to be here at COP and once again, having major announcements on the, around nuclear side. And You know, one of the things that we are have all seen is that nuclear is going to be uh, critical in the green transition. Uh, we are going to be making an announcement shortly about the financing that we are able to provide around small modular reactors. I think the thing that we are looking at is that XM over the decades has had significant experience, whether it's legal, financial, technical, engineering, you name it, in terms of analyzing these types of transactions. So what we wanted to do was to raise the level of awareness that XM has not only the lending capacity to do these kinds of transactions, but we wanted to talk more about XM's commitment on the renewable energy, energy efficiency, energy storage side, which coincides with what the president is trying to do. We have seen, uh, in being here, a a number of announcements that have been coming out. And we've seen a lot of interest in our American companies who are offering up that new technology that is going to be deployed with these particular transactions.
0: So what you're doing with Supporting exports of nuclear technology, what you're doing with support for exports of other types of energy technology from the US is kind of meant to be in alignment with the broader thrust of US climate policy. Is that right? And as you say, you've been actually supporting exports of nuclear technology for decades, decades right, as as Exim Bank. What's different about these SMRs, the small modular reactors? Is that something that kind of presents particular challenges or creates particular opportunities? Well, you know, first
2: of all, these are very large transactions. They're very complicated, and they always uh, involve the sovereign government. Uh, And so XM has also a long history working with sovereign guarantees. Uh, We are uh, going to be working with uh, all of our U.S. companies uh, that are in this particular ecosystem. What we are definitely seeing is that there is interest, especially at this COP, we're seeing interest across the board in almost every country. It doesn't matter what it is that we're talking about. It's all about helping our companies level the playing field when they are out competing, especially against against China.
0: Now, SMR technology in particular has been having a bit of a rough time recently. In particular, there was a high-profile project canceled in the United States after costs rocketed. How much interest really are you still seeing? And when in the conversations you have around here at CARP, and when you're talking to people about the potential for you to support U.S. exports of SMRs and SMR technology in general, do you find people are still interested
2: or is oh, that no. interest One, waning? No, no, not at, not at all, not by a, a long shot. Um, it is, um, first of all, you know, everyone is looking to, to, get, to, to get there first. And with these new technologies, they're also needing the need for significant financing. Um, we think we have not even think we know we have the best companies in the world. We think the value is going, the value proposition that they're offering is great. We know that the technology, uh, especially um, uh, ones who have um, like New Scale, who has already gone through the processes that. Are, processes through our Nuclear Regulatory Commission, when you go through that level of, of regulatory work, you know that the government is continuing to send signals to uh, all uh, who are interested that we believe we have the best companies and the best technology in the world. So XM uh, will always do our due diligence, very stringent, on any project and on any transaction that we do, and we would, uh, we would be doing the same thing on anything that we are Funding.
0: And you've mentioned a couple
2: of so
0: you've been coming to COPs for a long time now. You've been to many in your previous role in the Obama administration when you were in think tank world, then before uh, moving to Exim Bank. Uh, What do you make of this one? How do you read the mood of COP28? And what do you think has been significant about this conference?
2: You know, uh, yes, I have been coming to a number of COPs over the years, first starting out working with state and local leaders who were really kind of left out of the process. And what I saw for very, very early on, years ago, especially it was right after Copenhagen actually, is that state and local leaders and provincial governments were saying, look, we are where the rubber actually meets the road. These projects happen in localities. As they happen in localities, um, uh, they want to be a part of the solution. And as, the, as um, uh, what's going on in terms of climate change, they want to ensure that from an, especially from an economic development perspective, that they are right there advocating for their own companies. So I've seen um, um, throughout the years of COP since Copenhagen, the inclusion of so many more people. That is number one, and you see the interest whether it's state and local government leaders, it's whether it's nonprofits, whether it is women, and now over the years you see the massive inclusion of the private sector. This particular cop, I think, shows you every conversation that we've been in at this cop has always been about how we can leverage our financing, working with all of those um, all of those different uh, stakeholders. Um, I also see a major sense of urgency uh, around uh, the work that has to be done we have masses you know we have a lot of money that's going into these areas but it's all about can we find the projects and for us at xm everything starts with an application we need we're looking for we are actively seeking projects at this at this not only at this cop but in any uh, area of any place that i travel around the world we can't work on these renewable projects unless we see them coming in the door and so, since we're not going to sit back and wait, we got to go out and get them. So, as we have worked with um, all regions um, uh, that are participating in this COP here, right here at, in the UAE, right, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the African countries, Latin American countries, European countries, you name it, everyone is trying to figure out how do you how do you have true, I believe, public-private partnerships to move the transition.
0: And what's the one thing you think that any COP, COP28 in particular, could do to advance that, as you say, to really move the transition forward? Because as you say, there seems to be sometimes a disconnect. You have a lot of money that's available, a lot of capital that's there looking for projects in low carbon energy. You also have A lot of people who will tell you they have fantastic technologies for low carbon energy, they have great prospects, uh, great projects that can be developed to make a real contribution to reducing emissions, but often there are kind of barriers and obstructions in the way that prevent the capital from flowing to those projects. As I say, if there's one thing you think that could be done to help clear those barriers away and to get the financing to the projects to reduce emissions, where it's really needed, what would you say? What what needs to happen?
2: I I really do believe that, and and we've done this over the last two years is that, you know, um, I always say to our team, we can't be talking to the same group of people. We've got to expand uh, the reach of individuals who really are working directly on the ground with companies Uh, that actually have the business who are either trying to go global or you've got to have, uh, who are trying to deploy new technologies. So we've begun to talk way beyond the typical banking community that we have done that has been a a major um, supporter of the work of XM and and looking whereby whether it's private equity, asset managers, uh, family offices, venture capitalists, you name it, sovereign wealth funds, We have to really uh, expand our reach by talking to them because they have the projects, they funded the projects. They also don't know a lot about the government agency that has the ability to guarantee to use our guarantees, but which is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. Once they do, uh, I have definitely seen a lot more interest because many of them want to go into riskier markets. And if you go in with XM, they know we can either you know we can with the different types of financing structures that we might have. It gives us an ability sometimes, to not sometimes, but to spread that risk. It also gives them another opportunity because many of those uh, it, organizations are working around the world globally. They don't know that we can co-finance with other uh, export credit agencies for us to, to spread the risk. So um, whether we're working with you know the private sector or other export credit agencies, it's, it's our job to go out and make those introductions to them because they're supporting American companies, they're building American companies, and when they are ready for those companies to, to, to go global or to get bigger, and they want to diversify their financing, we want to let them know that we can also be an option for them.
0: Rita Lewis, thanks very much. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks very much to Rita Lewis for joining us, and thanks also to Henri Payet and Dr. Sanna Bouba Elion. And above all, as ever, thanks to all of you for listening. COP28 is into its final stages now, and we'll be back soon with a full assessment of what happened, what it all means, and what difference it'll make for global energy and the climate. Until then, goodbye.